for those of you who don't know, good morning, everyone. For those of you who don't know, that was my wife, Nita, and we were uh, unpleasantly surprised when we ran into each other this morning at home and realized that we dressed in the same clothes, and I was worried that, or same colors, and I was worried that, I was worried that you would think that was overly cute, um, which we kind of think, and I was also worried that you might think I was just her, that she just continued on in the sermon, but she said, you probably wouldn't have that trouble, so anyway. Hope you're not too confused by what we're doing up here. You and I seem to be hardwired for story. Uh, Nita talked about her in love for story, and I, my sense was that when she started out by saying, let me tell you about, we all kind of listened, we kind of leaned in, we, we, our ears perked up, because we're hardwired. Everyone loves a good story, do we not? It helps us to understand things. It helps us to remember the past. It helps us to reconnect with our roots and understand where we've come from and who we are and, all, and where we're going. So for example, I can tell you that our congregation, it's one thing for me to tell you that our congregation cares about blessing our neighbors, blessing the people around us, or that we care about missions and outreach. But you understand that in a different way if I tell you that many years ago, our congregation was the first, if, well, one of the first, if not the first congregation in Mount Joy to offer a summer Bible club for children. In 1934, the, the pastor at the time, Henry Garber, had a real passion for uh, taking the good news of Jesus to other nations, but also to the people in our, in our town. And so Mount Mennonite Church started a, I don't know what they called it then, but it was a summer Bible club, and they had over 400 children come, and the records say that from 13 different denominations, so kids from other churches, but over 400 children came. And over the years, as other churches developed similar programs, the numbers here diminished. But that same pastor was also instrumental a few years later in helping our congregation send out some of the first missionaries that were sent uh, from the organization that's now known as Eastern Mennonite Missions to East Africa as they started for the first time sending overseas missionaries to other countries. So when I tell you those things, you understand in a different way, what I say, we're as a congregation have been interested, have been committed to blessing our neighbors for decades, for a long, long time. Or if I tell you that we are a generous congregation, and I say that uh, as a way to, to, um, to be proud of you as a people, as a congregation, not just as uh, something that's true of me, but if I tell you that we're a generous congregation, you'll understand that differently if I tell you a story about why I say that. For those of you who were here, you will remember that in 2015, we celebrated a year of contagious generosity. We did that as a way of celebrating the payoff of our mortgage in 2014, on the mortgage on this building. We paid that off in 2014. In 2015, we said, as part of our celebration, let's, let's spend a year focused on contagious generosity. And one of the things we did as part of that was we said, let's, um, let's continue to give money to our building fund as though we were still paying off our mortgage, but at the end of the year, let's give, out, give away the money that came in to other local organizations that have capital needs, other organizations that are doing renovations or paying off a mortgage. And so we set what seemed like a, a kind of a stretch goal at that time. We said, let's see if we can raise $100,000 and give that away, $100,000 over our budget, and let's see if we can uh, raise that amount and give it away. And I am delighted, we were delighted at the time, I'm delighted to tell you again the story that we were able to give away $127,000. We exceeded our goal by 20, almost, well, I can't do the math, was it 27%, I guess, by um, quite a bit. 
And so we were thrilled to bless our neighbors in a generous way. But you understand that differently because I can tell you a story about it than if I just stand up and announce those things. 2015 also happens to be the year that we organized a Christmas feast for the first time for refugees and immigrants. But that's another story. I can tell you more. I'll have to come back to that another time. But stories tell us who we are. Stories tell us where we come from. They tell us what we value, what's important to us. And they tell, you, they tell us the kind of people we are or the kind of people we want to be. So when I tell you the story about generosity, I tell you that in part because that's something we want to continue to be. We want to continue to be generous, to grow in generosity, to be known for our generosity. We want to be known for blessing our neighbors. And so if I can tell you stories about how we've done that in the past, it encourages us to find new ways to do that in our time and in the present. There's a clear parallel here. This reminds me of the Hebrew people in the Old Testament, the Israelites. When they wanted to explain who God is or what God was like, they told a story. When they wanted to explain why things are the way they are, they told a story. When they wanted to explain to their children who they are and what God was asking of them, they told more stories. So the Bible, it should be no surprise to you, is a collection of stories. It has a story that ties it all together, but then it's made up of a series of stories that fit into that larger framework. The first book of the Bible, Genesis, or Beginnings, includes three sets of stories, three sets of stories that tell us about the launch of God's creation project. And if you were here last week, you remember I said, you can summarize the story that the Bible tells in six words. I said, the story of the Bible, the story the Bible tells is the story of the unfolding of God's creation project. That's, that's what the Bible is about. That's the story it tells, the unfolding of God's creation project. Let me cement that in your minds. Why don't you say that out loud with me? So if somebody asks you ever again, they say, what is the Bible about? I can't understand it. You can say it's what? The unfolding of God's creation project. Yeah, there you go, in six words. Today we're going to start the process of digging into a little more detail, telling the story a little, in a little more detail. Today's the first of six sermons that we're going to use to tell the whole story of the Bible as it unfolds over time. And today we're going to start by talking about the, uh, the problem and the, pro- the promise. The problem and the promise. So as I said, the, the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis, is made up of three sets of stories. The first set of stories tells us about the creation. In chapters 1 and 2, we hear the story of the creation. Now, these stories, including the ones about creation, but the other ones in Genesis, don't tell us everything we might want to know in every kind of detail about all of what happened. What they, do, what they do do is that they tell us those stories from God's perspective. They tell us what's important for us to know from God's perspective about how things began. So the first set is about the creation. The second set is about the problem, the sin problem. And we get those stories in chapters 3 to 11. And the rest of the 50 chapters of the book of Genesis are about the promise, about the promise, the solution, the promise of a solution. And we're going to talk about those two sets today. We talked last week about the creation stories a little bit. Today I'm going to talk about the, the problem and the promise. So let's start with looking at the sin problem and how God responds to the sin problem in this set of stories. Last week we touched on this a little bit. We said that um, people used the freedom of 
that God gave them to disobey him. They used the freedom that God gave them to disobey him. He gave them free will, and they used that freedom to choose, to choose to turn away from God. And in so doing, they welcomed sin into the world. They welcomed, this morning we sang, um, the, the video talked about darkness has not overcome it. That's what we're talking about, the sin, the darkness, the confusion, the evil that was introduced in the, in the world, all of which leads ultimately to death. So we learned last week that, uh, one of the things we learned was that um, people use the freedom that God gave them to turn away from him almost immediately, according to the way the story is told. Another thing we learn is that the, that the sin problem becomes a huge problem. It complicates everything in the story from them on. It never fully um, undermines or threatens God's power or God's purpose, but it complicates the whole rest of the story. Another thing that we notice if you look at these, uh, these stories in chapters 3 to 11 is that God always responds to sin with judgment and with grace. God always responds to sin with judgment and with grace. Judgment, bringing a limit, limiting sin or bringing an end to it, and grace in providing a pathway forward, providing a constructive way forward, a hopeful way forward. So God limits or brings an end to sin, but then provides a, way, a pathway forward. So let me show you what I mean in the, um, the four stories that are in these chapters. The first one is about the Garden of Eden, probably one of the best known stories from the Bible. The, the sin problem, the sin that happens there is that Adam and Eve eat of the forbidden fruit. They disobey God. And the judgment that's carried out, what would happen is that they're expelled from the garden. So the judgment there is that they are expelled from this perfect place to live, this place that God had created specifically for them to live. And so the judgment is the loss of Eden. But the grace in that story is that they're kept from eating from the tree of life. They're kept from eating the tree that would have trapped them in their sin condition in an eternal way. So God provides hope for them that they're not going to be trapped. The, the second story is the one where Cain kills his brother Abel. The wrongdoing there is the killing of his brother and the judgment on Cain is that, <clears throat> that he becomes a restless wanderer. He's, he's uh, uh, cast out from the people, from the land, from, from his family, from the presence of the Lord. But the grace is that it, it also says in that passage, if you know the story, that God puts a mark on Cain to protect him. So that he, when people encounter him, they'll know that he's, God's protection is upon him. So God offers grace even to Cain. The third story is the one of the flood where it says that sin had taken over the world, basically. It was multiplying, it was running rampant. And so God brought judgment in the form of a flood. So the judgment brings an end to that sin. It, it did lead to the death of many people. That's part of what that judgment was. But the grace was that God preserved enough of the creation to move forward, to go on, on the other side of the judgment. And he, prov he provides a promise not to bring judgment in that form again. And the fourth story in the series is the one of the Tower of Babel or Babel. People were trying to build a tower to reach heaven and I don't think the problem was so much that they were builders or they were good at constructing. It was that they were trying to uh, compete with God or do without God. They were trying to say, look what we can do. We don't need you, God. So God brings an end to that project. The judgment is that the people are scattered, that their languages are confused, that they can't communicate with each other in the way that they were used to. 
things get garbled and mixed up. But the grace, so that brings an end to that sinful activity. The grace in that story actually comes in chapter 12 where God calls Abraham and provides a pathway forward. God provides a solution. We have the problem and the promise of a solution. So in each of those stories, we see that God responds to sin with judgment and also with grace. Another thing we learn from these fall stories, if you want to call them that, in these chapters of Genesis, the sin problem stories, is that their decision broke four key relationships. And I think we've, we've talked about this here before, but let me just remind you of that, that the sin decision to embrace sin and wrongdoing broke four key relationships. One is, the first one and most important, is the relationship between people and God. It, because their decision to, to disobey God meant that they didn't fully trust God. And that broke their relationship with God in a way that, that has been with us ever since. But, I mean, just think about that. These first created human beings had immediate contact with God, immediate connection with God. They spoke with God. They, they, they were somehow walking with God in a very immediate way, and yet they turned away from him almost immediately according to the way the story is told. But the problem there is that they didn't trust God fully. The second relationship that, that this breaks is the relationship between each other, between people. If you know the story, you know that almost immediately when God confronts Adam with the choice that he and Eve made, what does Adam say? She made me do it, right? It's her fault. You put her here, you gave her to me, and she led me into this. Cain turns against his brother Abel. It's incredible to me how early in the story that happens. But this, the choice to embrace sin turned them against each other, so they didn't fully trust each other anymore either. And to this day, one of the things we struggle with in getting along with each other is suspicion and jealousy and mistrust and all of those things. The third relationship that it breaks is our relationships with ourselves. We don't fully trust ourselves anymore either. We know that we have an inclination to evil. We know that we, we are weak and flawed because of sin. They understood, Adam and Eve understood evil from experience now. And in the story it says when they gave account to God, they said we were ashamed. They had a sense of guilt and shame about the, the sin that they had committed. They no longer trusted themselves. And the fourth relationship is that between human beings and the created world the world around them. They were cut off from their intended home in the Garden of Eden. The ground itself was cursed. The ground of this whole created order was cursed because of their decision to turn away from God. And ever since, the ground has resisted human efforts to produce crops. It says in Genesis 3 that from now on, you're gonna raise your crops with painful toil and with the sweat of your brow. We don't really know any other way, do we? Can you imagine what it might be like to grow your crops, your food, without painful toil, without the sweat of your brow? Wouldn't that be amazing? I mean, it's, it's almost beyond imagining. I mean, I, one of the things that frustrates me to no end is that as fertile as the ground is to grow the tomatoes that I love every summer, the weeds like it even more. I feel like I spend as much time tear, tearing out weeds as I do caring for my tomato plants. So... Uh, yeah, so to, to imagine that that would be effortless is pretty amazing to me. Paul says in Romans 8 that the whole creation is groaning, groaning under this curse, waiting for, the, for God's redemption of his creation project. Another thing to, to notice about uh, the sin problem is that sin 
addresses, the, the sin problem affects the whole creation project. This whole world that God has created is impacted by sin. It's not just one person. It's not just one family. It impacts everything in this whole created world. So the true solution to the sin problem needs to address all of the, the implications, all of what it, the problems that sin causes. It's about far more than, it includes you and me being right with God, but it's about far more than just you or me getting a free pass into heaven. I mean, God cares about restoring his relationship with you and me as individuals, but, God, but that's in part of, of a broader context of God's love and care for and hope to restore all of what he created. So we're, we're trapped by this sin, we're trapped by our distance from God, and it becomes clear pretty quickly that we're gonna need God's help to solve the sin problem. We're gonna need God's help to get us out of this trouble. So two questions that you wanna ask as you read the stories of the Bible in light of the problem, remember this morning we were talking about the problem and the, solu- uh, the, pr- the promise, the problem and the promise, is what is the sin problem in this story that I'm reading? What, how is sin impacting what's going on here? What, what problems is sin creating in this uh, part, this story from the Bible that I'm reading? And secondly, what is God doing to solve the sin problem? Jeremy reminded us this morning that God does not abandon us. God has not turned away from us because of our sin. Thanks be to God. So another question to ask is, what is God doing in this story to provide grace, to provide promise, to provide solution and hope? To, move, to redeem things and move them forward. So we have the problem of sin, but we also have the promise, the promise of redemption. God promises a solution to the sin problem. He makes it very clear from almost the very beginning of the, of the fall that he's, as we said, he's not giving up on his creation project. He's not giving up on the whole thing, which I think probably most of us would do early on, would we not? If something we created went so badly wrong as the earth did after God created it, how many of us would have had the patience to say, oh, let's try again. Let's hang in there. No, we would say that was a failed experiment. Let me junk that and let me try something else. But God doesn't do that. God provides a promise almost right away. So that's today, we, in our first sermon, we talk about the problem and the promise Understanding that God is going to be actively involved in bringing about a solution. So he's not giving up and he's going to be actively involved in bringing a solution. So the four stories that unfold in Genesis chapter 12 to 50, the rest of the book of Genesis, are mostly about four couples, four mothers and fathers of the faith, you might say. We have Abraham and Sarah, and then we have um, Isaac and Rebekah, and then Jacob and his two wives, Leah and Rachel, and then Joseph in Egypt and his wife Asenath. All of that flows out of the promise that Nita read for us from Genesis 12 that's echoed in Genesis 18 where the Lord summarizes again what he's promised to Abraham, to be, that he will become a powerful nation through whom he's going to bless all the nations on the earth. He's chosen Abraham and his children, his followers, his descendants in order to bless all the peoples of the earth through them. So God's promise is, we have the problem, but God's promise is that he will work with and care for Abraham's descendants, Abraham's family, in a special way. He's going to protect them, he's going to bless them, so that, so that they will become a priestly people. What does it say here in this text? It says, I have chosen him so he will direct his children and his household after him to what? To keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just. I'm going to bless him and protect him so that they will become a godly people. 
so that they will represent me in this world, in this created order, by how they live, how they treat each other, by who they are. And he says, I'm gonna bless them so they'll become a priestly people to model the way of life I intended from the beginning. So his first goal for Abraham's family, his first goal for the people that he's calling through Abraham is that they would keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just, that they would be righteous people and just people. And secondly, his goal, his promise is that he will bless all the families of the earth, all the peoples on the earth through this one family. You see that up in the, uh, in the second line there. Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation and all nations of the earth will be blessed through him. The purpose of blessing and caring for Abraham and his family is that all the nations, all the peoples of the earth will be blessed. The psalmist who wrote Psalm 67 understands this when he writes, may God be gracious to us and bless us. The us here is Abraham's descendants, the children of Israel. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine on us so that your ways, O God, may be known on earth, your salvation known to all nations. May the peoples praise you, God. May all the peoples praise you. May the nations be glad and sing for joy. For you rule the peoples with equity and guide the nations of the earth. May the peoples praise you, God. May all the peoples praise you. The land yields its harvest. God, our God, blesses us. May God bless us still so that, so that the ends of the earth will fear him. There are two important words in this text that you need to understand clearly. They're often misunderstood. And I just wanna pause a moment and highlight them for you because it's, if you don't understand these words and the way they're intended, it, it skews your reading of all the texts that follow. The first one is chosen and the second one is nation. Chosen and nation. Chosen in this case means chosen for a mission. It doesn't mean that I picked you out to be my girlfriend. I didn't pick you out to be my favorite. I'm not, I'm not gonna play favorites. I'm choosing you for a mission. Maybe a better word for our way of understanding would be to think of it as I'm commissioning you. I'm choosing you and setting you apart for a task I have for you to do. We learn that throughout the story, the Bible tells that God loves and cares for everyone and everything he created. He cares for his whole creation project, the whole undertaking and all the people. In Genesis 12, he's choosing a people, a family, not just a person, He's choosing a, a family in order to bless all the families, all the peoples on the earth, not just to play favorites. The second word in there is nation. Nation here means a people, a family. It doesn't, when you and I hear the word nation, we immediately think, oh, the US is a nation. Oh, China's a nation, Mexico's a nation. They have geographical, political boundaries. Those are nations. But here, what's, what's in view, though, that didn't even exist in the time that any of the books of the Bible were written. There wasn't such thing as a nation state the way we think of it. We're talking here about peoples or people groups or families. Maybe a, a, another way to understand this is to look ahead at Revelation 7 where John's looking into heaven. And what he says is, I looked into heaven and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language. It's that sense that we're talking about here. A gathered throng in heaven from every nation, tribe, people, and language. 
standing before the throne and before the Lamb. He says, though that gathered throng was wearing white robes, holding palm branches in their hands and saying, salvation belongs to our God, crying out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God. We all are his people, his children, to the God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. A better word, maybe a substitute that would resonate better for us in terms of the meaning that's intended here is community or family. So Abraham's descendants, Abraham's family, are commissioned to be a missionary community whose purpose is to reveal God to the world. God's, or Abraham's descendants, Abraham's family, are meant to be, a, they're commissioned to be a missionary community whose purpose is to reveal God to the world. After God brings them out of Egypt, in the story we'll hear more about next week, he says to them through Moses, he says, if you will obey me and keep my covenant, remember he said to Abraham, if they will be righteous and just, if you will obey me and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations, or we might say all the families, all the communities on earth, you will be my treasured possession. I will focus my energies on you. I will focus my delight on you. Although the whole earth is mine, I own the whole earth, all the peoples on the earth are mine. You will be for me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. And that's because when people look at this family of Abraham, they are intended to see God, God's character, to see the way of life that God intended, to see godly people here on the earth and be filled with hope, filled with aspiration, say that's what we want to be like. That's what the, the people of Israel were called to be. So. We need to add a third question to the questions we ask as we read the stories of the Bible. The first one we asked is, what is the sin problem? How, how is sin impacting what's happening here? The second one is, um, what is God doing to solve the sin problem? How is God addressing the sin problem in the story? And the third one is, how faithfully are God's people cooperating with God? How faithfully are people cooperating with their missionary assignments? That's an important question to keep asking as we read the stories that follow as the, the story of the Bible unfolds. So there you have it, the problem and the promise. The problem, as we said, is that the creatures that God made, the creatures that God put here on the earth to represent him turned away from him almost immediately. And that decision complicates every part of the story. We know that God limits, or limits sin by judgment but always offers grace, provides a, graciously provides a pathway forward. But we also know that God doesn't give up on his creation project. He identifies a family and promises, promises to work through them to reclaim his vision of a harmonious human society where things flourish in the way he intended. In a way, God will be visible by his presence in the world through this family, through this people, in order to bless all the nations. He promises to be faithful to them and through them to bless all the peoples on the earth. And all he asks is that they remain faithful to him, that they trust him, that they remain faithful to him by trusting him and by cooperating with him. Some of you are familiar with the old hymn that says, trust and obey. That's where this comes from. From ancient times, what God has asked for is that people would trust him, respond to his faithfulness by being faithful to him, and that they would obey him or cooperate with him in his purposes. 
And one of the astonishing things, brothers and sisters, is that through Jesus Christ, through the person and work of Jesus Christ, you and I are heirs of that promise. You and I get to share in that promise, that chosenness, that assignment that God has given to his people. You and I face the sin problem, do we ever? We know what that's like, we struggle with sin because it hasn't been fully removed from our lives yet. But through Jesus, we've also become part of the people of God and we share in the promise that God made many, many centuries ago to bring about redemption. You and I together, we are gathered together as a chosen people. The the, the first letter that Peter writes in the New Testament says, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood. You and I are a holy nation in much the same way that the children of Israel were called to be a holy nation. He says, you are a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. God has called us out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once we were not a people, but now we are the people of God. Now we are joined to the people of God. Once we had not received mercy, but now we have received mercy. Thanks be to God. All that he asks, all that he asks is that we remain faithful to him by trusting him and by cooperating with him. And my question that I want to leave with you this morning is, will you do that? Will you do that? Will you commit yourself to trusting in him and to cooperating with his call on our lives, our shared life together? I'm going to invite you to close your eyes this morning. I'm going to invite you to close your eyes and I'm just going to ask you to, within yourself, to say yes to those two simple questions. I'm going to make it three. Trusting in God. So internally, will you place your trust? Let's say it together internally. Yes, Lord, I will trust in your faithfulness. Yes, Lord, I will trust in your faithfulness. Secondly, yes, Lord, I will trust in your promises to your people. Yes, Lord, I will trust in your promises to your people. And thirdly, yes, Lord, I will cooperate with you. Yes, Lord, I will obey you. I will cooperate with you. Maybe some of you have said those things to the Lord this morning for the very first time. If that's true, you're you're just beginning a journey of trusting and obeying the Lord. And we're delighted to, to welcome you among the people of God. For many, some of you, you've prayed it for, for the many, manyth time. But that's, those are two key questions to come back to again and again in our journey of faith, our journey of following, to recommit ourselves again and again as we understand more fully what it means to trust God in my circumstances in my life right now and to obey God. Lord, you've heard our prayers this morning. You've heard the desires of our heart. You've heard our surrender to you our willingness to trust you, our willingness to trust in your faithfulness, to trust in your promises, our willingness to obey you, to cooperate with you. And Lord, I ask you to bring this to mind throughout this week to come as we encounter specific situations at work, at school, at home, where we're tempted not to trust you, where we're tempted to not obey you. I ask you to bring these these questions and this commitment to mind for each of us this week. Ask us, are you trust, will you trust me in this moment? Will you trust who I am? Will you trust my faithfulness? Will you trust my promises to you? 
and will you obey me? So that we can say yes to you in the details of our lives, not just in the big picture sense, but in the specifics of our lives. Lord, we thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you that you have provided grace, the promise in response to the problem. And we want to cooperate with you as you worked out in our lives, in our time, and in the age to come. We thank you and we bless you. We're delighted and grateful to be your people, O God. And we thank you in Jesus' name.